Our text is from Psalm 127, one of the songs of ascent. This is the only one written by Solomon. We have several psalms of ascent that are unnamed or unattributed to its author. We have several that are written by David, attributed to David, but only one written by Solomon, and it happens to fall right in the middle of this grouping of the song, songs of ascent. It may be that Solomon, in, in, in a way, was the editor of these and put them together and put his right in the middle of, of this grouping of songs of ascent. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house... Oops, where is it? Okay, it's always troubling when you... Ah, there we go. Got the pages mixed up. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Here we end the reading of God's Word. It's a psalm that celebrates the family. It's a psalm that celebrates children. It's a psalm that reminds people that their ultimate security is in not in the walls of a city or the arms of a warrior or the, the speed of a horse, but it is in the Lord. And he's the only source of security, whether for you, for your family, for your church, for your city, for your nation. He's the only source of security. And those who trust in him for their keeping are those who can sleep peacefully at night and not be worried with meaningless, futile toil and worried with anxiousness. What will happen to us? What will become of us? Oh, the enemies are all around us. Oh, there's all kinds of problems. I mean, do, when, when Christians get together today, is it not all the problems we face in our society that we end up talking about? 90% of the time it is. And we can get all wrapped up in all of these things, and yet we need to remember that it is the Lord who brings us through these things safely. I can lay down at night and close my eyes and not have the cares of the world on my shoulder. Well, that's a little background. And of course, we remember as the songs of ascent were sung, chanted by the people of Israel as they're going up to Jerusalem on these days of these feast times during the year. And this seems to be a, a very fitting psalm to, uh, to sing and encourage each other along the way. The Lord is the keeper of Israel. The Lord is the keeper of our family. The Lord is the one who blesses us with children, which are his heritage. But as you might gather from the title of the sermon, there's a dark side to this psalm, too. And it has to do with the man who wrote it. How many of you have ever heard of a person, a woman named Rosario Butterfield? Anyone know who she is? 
If you don't know, and even if you do know, I'll tell you the story anyway. She was a professor of literature at Syracuse University in New York, and she wrote an article that was published in a local paper on the, the conundrum, the puzzle of Solomon. How could a man who had been wist, who had so much wisdom and imparted that wisdom in all of these proverbs and had, had this sense of God in his life and, and had inherited the kingdom, how could this man turn to idol worship? And, but at this point in her life, she's simply looking at Solomon's life as a story told in the literature of the Bible. She didn't believe the Bible, she, but, you know, it had this interesting historical uh, section in it that dealt with Solomon, and, and it posed this problem. Well, actually, that's a very insightful thing to, to think about. How could this man, who had been blessed by God, who was the king of Israel, who had built a temple, who had written these psalms, and, and kings and queens from other lands came and listened to the wisdom of Solomon? How could this man turn from God? And by the way, this wasn't just a, a turning from God, a lack of interest. If you want to turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter 11 and read the actual, the actual things that Solomon fell into, it's a remarkable fall. 1 Kings 11, beginning at the, the beginning of the chapter. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they, uh, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines. And his wives turned away his heart, for when, for when Solomon was old, uh, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. How could this happen? How could this happen? In explaining the, the dynamics of Solomon's all, he marries 700 wives. Now, in the ancient world, these were often marriages of political convenience. They were, in many ways, a, a way of sealing a treaty with a foreign king. The foreign king would give his daughter to the king to be married, to become his wife, in many cases, this daughter was essentially a hostage to guarantee that the king would keep the treaty that he had made. There was an implied threat. 
that if your if this king breaks the treaty with, well, Solomon or one of the other kings, his daughter would be harmed, imprisoned, or even put to death. She was often a hostage. That was not necessarily the case with Solomon because God tells us in his word that Solomon loved his 700 wives, 300 concubines, princesses. By the way, I think that is a reference to the fact these were princesses from other kings. These were the daughters of other kings. Some of them, not all of them. Now, I have to say, there's a, there's a naughty little part of me that wants to say 700 wives, 300 concubines, the jokes just write themselves at this point. I can barely handle one. She's not here. I've said this before. <laughs> How do you deal with 700? Well, they weren't necessarily all living together. They weren't all necessarily with Solomon all the time. There was a distance there. This Again, this was more social and political custom rather than romantic family life. But something happened, and it was something that God had warned Israel about in the very beginning. You shall not take wives from these tribes that surround Israel that are idol-worshiping tribes. You will not take their daughters to be your wives, and you will not give your daughters to be their wives, because they will bring their corruption of idolatry into Israel. They will turn your hearts to idols. Did Solomon think that he was exempt from that, that it didn't apply to him? He knew the Scriptures. He knew this. He'd been trained in the Scriptures his whole life. Did he not understand this? Did he think that he was wise enough to avoid the temptation? I don't know. We're not told what went on in Solomon's mind, except that he allowed his affection for these wives to draw him away from wholehearted devotion to God. He did not wholly, completely follow God. In fact, it's pretty, it's pretty discouraging when you think about it. He built shrines and altars so that his wives could worship, and he himself followed in, in that. Did you read the list of the gods and their, their, uh, the, how God describes them in the, in the Scripture? the abominations. You go back into Israel's history and that abomination, it's not just an idol. It's an idol for which the worship of that idol requires abominable acts. Did you recognize the name of Chemosh and Moloch? What kind of worship was associated with those false gods? Human sacrifice. Human sacrifice, bring your firstborn children to the, the red-hot metal idol of Moloch and place that screaming baby in the glowing red-hot arms of this idol and think that you are worshiping a god as you see the smoke from the burning body of your child rising up and you hear its screams. And finally, there's silence and ashes 
where once there was a child. Do you get the contradiction? This is the man who said children are a heritage from the Lord. But I'm going to build idols to Moloch so that my wives can sacrifice to these abominations. Sorry if that was a little graphic, but you need to grasp the depth of this wickedness that infected Solomon's heart. This is the contradiction that Rosario Butterfield wrote about. By the way, her article appeared in the paper. It got some responses. She writes a book about this experience. One of the thoughtful responses, though, was from a local pastor of a Reformed Presbyterian church. And they started a conversation back and forth with each other, and eventually Rosario became a believer. took a while. She had a lot of questions and a lot of problems. Remember, she's in a lesbian relationship at, at this time, too. She was, she was in a very ungodly lifestyle. But she became a believer, and she didn't try to soften the contradiction between her lifestyle and her faith. She knew she had to leave the life that she was leading, had led up to this point. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, but by God's grace, she fought the battle and still fights it. We all fight that battle against sin. This is the contradiction. How could the man who wrote this psalm in his older years, in his later years, build idols for sacrificing human sacrifice. And we know, for again, from the history that at its low points, Israel actually did participate in human sacrifice, the abomination of Moloch and Chemosh, the Ashtoreth, all of these false gods. There's a passage in the Bible that reminds us that people who worship a god become like that God. I mean, and Christians should understand this, that we worship the true and living God, and we are to become more and more godly. We are to reflect his, his righteousness, his holiness, his love, his, all of his communicable attributes are to be growing in us as the fruit of the Spirit grows in us. We become like him in that respect, but it's also true that idol worshipers, worshipers of false gods, become more and more like their God. And if your God demands human sacrifice, you become more and more in the way of thinking of, of cheapening human life, of cruelty. Why would you do this? You're trying to appease your God, you're trying to win your God's attention and favor? You think that by, by appeasing him, he will somehow give you some favor, some goodness? One of the great differences between the true and living God and the false gods of the nations is that those gods are arbitrary. They might bring prosperity to you one day and the next day completely 
on their own, they might ruin you. God is a God of steadfast love. He does not change his mind regarding his people. He does not bless one day and destroy the next day on a whim. But that's why the worship of these false gods was often so frantic, so 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 wild, and it was more of an orgy, and sometimes literally an orgy, to appease the god. If you worshipped a god of fertility, you engaged in fertility rites that celebrated your god of fertility. That's why in Corinth, there was a, a temple of Aphrodite filled with temple prostitutes and gave much, much, uh, pro- many problems to the church at Corinth. How could this have happened? Solomon allowed a misplaced love and perhaps an overabundance of self-confidence to lead him into sin and transgression, to violate one of God's commands to his people. And he paid the price. The Lord judged Solomon, saying, In your days I will not tear the kingdom away, but in the days of your son I will tear the kingdom away, leaving you only one tribe. And the other tribes will go to another. One of your servants will rule the other tribes, and that's actually how it worked out. What's well, the tragic story behind the man who wrote this beautiful, family, godly, faith-filled psalm that accompanied the people to the, pre, uh, to the feasts every year? Let's actually look at the psalm. We turn from Solomon, who really messed up, and we look at the psalm. The first part of it is actually in two, in two parts. The first part tells us about the necessity of the Lord's blessing to establish our families and our nations or our cities. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, that's, that's, there's, there's a couple of messages coming in here. First of all, it's not up to you. It is up to the Lord to, to maintain you, uh, your, your home, your house, the, the, the godly people who trust in the Lord. Find him as their protector, their rock, their high tower, the one that that watches over them, and whether it's in the in the confines of your family or in your city, and you could expand that out in your nation and as well, it is the Lord who guarantees your security. You could make spiritual applications of this. Perhaps Solomon's problem was ultimately that he was not trusting in God, that he did not believe that God would keep him, and he thought he needed to follow his wives in offering sacrifices to these false gods. 
It's also the other side of this message, the necessity of God being the one who sustains and maintains. By the way, at the end of Psalm 90, which is a psalm of Moses, that psalm in in many ways is a very somber psalm, contrasting the brevity of life, of human life, with the eternality of God. But at the end of the psalm, Moses turns in prayer to the Lord and says, Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We can labor and we can work and we can try to build this and that, but the Lord is the one who establishes it, who brings firmness again and security to the work of our hands. The other side of the message is this. If you are trusting in your own strength, your own wisdom, to keep security for yourself and those around you, you will be eating the bread of anxious toil. You will be engaging in futility. Unless the Lord keeps you, you labor in vain. But if you're not trusting in the Lord, you will be filled with anxious toil. He gives to his beloved sleep. That's a contrast. You're going to be filled with anxious toil, laying and tossing on your bed at night, worrying about everything that's going on around you, or will you be sleeping peacefully in the arms of your Lord and God? It's good, I think. You know, we teach our children, I I don't know if you did, but We taught our children, and I was taught by my parents, the children's prayer before you go to bed. Anybody remember how that goes? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I've committed myself to God's keeping. There's wisdom in that prayer. I've committed myself to him. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day, against that great day, and I can sleep peacefully. That's the first part of this psalm. Verse 3 begins a slightly different perspective. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. There's, again, a little cultural background. What does it mean to be speaking with your enemies in the gate? Hmm. Well, the leaders of the city would often meet at the gate of the city. They were the elders of the city, and they would meet, and they would make decisions. People with issues would come to them and speak to them, but they were also the ones there guarding the gate. So if the city was approached by by enemies, they would be the ones to first deal with those enemies. Job was a man who was respected in his city, 
and often gave advice and uh, passed judgments at the gate of the city. When Boaz wanted to take Ruth as his wife, he had to meet with the elders of the city and go through that rather strange ceremony of the, the sandal. Take the sandal. And the man who lost his sandal was forever known then as the, the man who lost his sandal. Why? Because he was not willing to fulfill his, his duty as the next in line. So it was a common ancient practice to, for the, the elders, the leading men of the city, to meet at the gate of the city, guarding, confronting the enemy, but also leading, making decisions, and giving judgments and advice to those who came to them. This is the picture here. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. He might have personal enemies who live in the city, but he confronts them, and he confronts them having raised strong children who are with him. The image of the arrow, the arrow is not shot aimlessly. It is, it is intended to be aimed and to strike a target. And that tells us the imagery is that it has purpose, that it has direction, that it has uh, a, a God-intended purpose. And there is a purpose for our children. They are to be trained in the faith of the Lord. They are to be trained in the paths of righteousness. When our children are brought for baptism, we take vows and promise before God and before the church that we will raise them in the nurture and fear of the Lord. We also, actually, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we also take a vow to teach them the catechism. You know that we do, actually. Um, teach them the truths as they are contained in our, our doctrinal standards, truths of the faith. In doing so, we are giving them a purpose. We are giving them a direction, a Godward direction in their lives. Does it always work? Well, no, not always, but some, most of the time it does. God's decree of election still cuts through the visible church. But this is God's ordained way of raising up new generations of worshipers, new generations of faithful worshipers of God. They are the heritage from the Lord. They are to be honored as and understood to be a gift that God gives to parents so that they might, in turn, raise this child to serve the true and living God. Again, I can't escape the horrible contradiction the man who wrote this facilitated child sacrifice. Well, let's ask some practical questions. In our families, are we trusting God to build our families? It starts when a man and a woman come together and they marry. The Scripture tells us that they should marry in the Lord. The Old Testament forbids marriage with the pagan nations, 
The New Testament, Paul says they should marry in the Lord. That's the first step in, in, in the Lord building your house. Parents, when your child comes home with that boyfriend or girlfriend and it's the first time you meet them or maybe even heard about them, first question you ought to be asking is, are they Christian? Next question might be, are they Reformed? But that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. How can two walk together unless they are agreed? Wisdom from Scripture. That's the first step in the Lord building the house. I have known people who fell so head over heels in love with someone that they didn't care what the answer was, or they were perhaps deceived, and part of that was self-deception. Oh, he's a wonderful man. She's a beautiful Christian. And then you find out, no, not really. They lose interest. They walk away. And they drag your child with them. What's another step? Well, men and women, when you are married, there are vows that we take. A man's vows to love, to cherish. A woman's vows to love, cherish, and obey. Mary Lynn often says, loving and cherishing and, and so forth. I'm still working on that obedience thing, though. Still working on that. But we keep our vows. That's the next step. God is a promise keeper. And he requires his people to keep their promises to one another. That's another step in the Lord building the house. Here's a third step. Your marriage, our marriage, involves three people. The husband, the wife, and Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we'll get into this a little next week. Jesus Christ is actually the model for both husbands and wives. We, we get the husband thing. He's the head of the church. The husband is the head of the family. We learn a lot about being the head of the family by, by learning about Christ as the head of the church. But did you know that Jesus also is the perfect example of submission? He submits to the will of his Father, joyfully so. Joyfully so. Even though it was hard, there's no woman who submits to her husband who actually had to endure what Jesus endured in obedience to his Father, submission to the Father's will. Jesus Christ must be at the center of our families. That's another step in the Lord building the house. We must recapture this concept as well, that our children are a heritage from the Lord. They not only carry on our name, they carry on our, our family line. Those are kind of external things, and yes, people take pride in that. But they are the ones who, as God opens their eyes, as God works in their hearts, will carry on the faith. Our children are the next generation of church 
of, of people who who uh, live and work and serve God in his church. He gives us children so that we, in a sense, can give them back to him. That, too, is part of the Lord building the house. We give our children direction. We remember that children are the fruit of the womb, and they are a reward. This gets us back to that Genesis passage, doesn't it? Does our culture today love children? Oh, there's lots of talk about love. But does our culture value children as a heritage from the Lord? Well, first thing, we we kill a lot of children before they're born. A lot of families' children are abandoned by a father raised in single homes. Even today, we, we tell people that children are, are more of a burden than a blessing. You're going to have to change your whole life. Your life will never be the same again once you have children. You will be focused on them. You will not be able to pursue your own career unstopped by any other interests. And so we have lost this, by and large, we have lost this concept that the children that we have are a blessing, a reward, a heritage. It is in a biblical worldview and a biblical view of faith, a biblical view of our relationship to God and his purpose in the family that we find the value and the joy and the reward of children, even when they are difficult. Even when they are difficult. Do we sacrifice? Yes. Studies show that single people or husbands and wives who don't have children have a lot more disposable income that they can spend on themselves. And they might enjoy that. But they're missing something great as well. It's not always God's intention that children come along. Sometimes sometimes God calls us to a, a life without children so that we can devote ourselves wholeheartedly to his service. We don't think that Paul actually had any children. There's no mention of a wife or their spiritual children like Timothy and Titus, but not physical children for Paul. Peter, on the other hand, had a wife and a family. Uh, <laughs> the first pope. Yeah, well, look, try to untangle the, the, the teachings of the Roman church and you'll that's an exercise in frustration. We challenged ourselves when we read this passage. In my family, in our families, can we recapture the concept that children are a blessing, that children are a reward and a heritage? My mom wrote a prayer when I was born. I in some ways, I, I think that the reason I'm in the ministry is because God answered her prayer. She wrote this. She showed it to me years later. Lord, you have given me this child, and I give him back to you. Ever since she showed me that 
scrap of paper that she had written this prayer on, it's, it's been with me in my mind. And I'm not in the ministry to fulfill some wish of my mother. I'm in the ministry because God answered her prayer. That ought to be a prayer for every parent, too. You blessed me with a child. I'm not going to sacrifice him on an altar to a false god, but I will give him back to you to serve, to love, to honor, to believe, to grow in faith and in life. That's how we recapture the role of a child in a family. It's also another step in the Lord building the house. The Lord building a house. Have you ever thought, especially uh, some of us older people, I know sometimes I don't act old. I still have this image of myself as a college kid. And then I look in the mirror and say, got to be kidding, right? I have a face for radio, what can I say? But as we grow older and we look back on our lives, can we look back on our lives and not also have a little regret that we didn't do what was necessary for the Lord to build our house? that we didn't necessarily follow through with those vows that we took when our children were brought for baptism. That while we may have tried, we often fell short of being the the right parent or the, the, the parent that led our children in the right way. This is where God's grace comes in. God is a better father than I am. God is a better teacher of my children than I was. If I can point them back to his word, I can also trust that God will teach him from teach them from his word. I was not the example, perfect example. I was not the one who kept my vows absolutely. I tried, but looking back, I can see where I fell short. And I'll bet every parent here can do the same thing. That's why we have this thing called confession, repentance, and forgiveness. And having learned from my own children, I can help them as they raise their children. Having acknowledged where I was weak, I can then help them not fall into the same problems that I may have brought into our family. Oh, we expect pastors to be perfect parents. I mean, that's, that's the main source of the Sunday afternoon activity around the dinner table, having roast pastor. Because did you see his kids in church today? Oh, what a scandal. I was so embarrassed. Yeah, just like your kids. 
there's a point at which we humbly come before God and say, Lord, I know what you've taught me. I know I should be doing this, but Lord, I have failed. I have not done your will perfectly as a father. This is why I need you to build my house. And I can trust you to build my house where I fall short. I'm humbly confessing our sins and our failures before God. Don't use the term mistake. I made a mistake. Yeah. No, I did not fulfill what God told me to do. But I can trust him for forgiveness and renewal, and I can trust him to keep my family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge that every parent here acknowledges that we were not perfect parents, that we often fell short in our role as parents. We did not provide a right model, a right example for our children. We, we were weak when we should have been strong. We were perhaps too permissive or too strict sometimes. And we did not spend the time teaching them as we sh should have. We were diverted with other activities and other concerns. But you teach us in your word that children are a heritage from the Lord, and we are to raise them in faith and life. We are to raise them to trust in you. We are to raise them to be godly. Where we have failed, Lord, we trust you to teach through your word and spirit. We commit our children to you. Unless you build our families, we labor in vain. Unless you guard our land, we watch in vain. So, Lord, protect us, teach us, lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.